Mr. Justice Powell announced the judgment of the court. This case presents a challenge to the special admissions program of the petitioner, the Medical School of the University of California at Davis, which is designed to assure the admission of a specified number of students from certain minority groups. The Superior Court of California sustained respondents' challenge, holding that petitioners' program violated the California Constitution, Title VI, of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The court enjoined petitioner from considering respondents' race or the race of any other applicant in making admissions decisions. It refused, however, to order respondents' admission to the medical school, holding that he had not carried his burden of proving that he would have been admitted but for the constitutional and statutory violations. The Supreme Court of California affirmed those portions of the trial court's judgment, declaring the special admissions program unlawful and enjoining petitioner from considering the race of any applicant. It modified that portion of the judgment, denying respondents' requested injunction, and directed the trial court to order his admission. For the reasons stated in the following opinion, I believe that so much of the judgment of the California court as holds petitioner's special admissions program unlawful and directs that respondent be admitted to the medical school must be affirmed. For the reasons expressed in a separate opinion, my brothers, the Chief Justice, Mr. Justice Stewart, Mr. Justice Rehnquist, and Mr. Justice Stevens concur in this judgment. I also conclude, for the reasons stated in the following opinion, that the portion of the court's judgment enjoining petitioner from according any consideration to race in its admissions process must be reversed. For reasons expressed in separate opinions, my brothers, Mr. Justice Brennan, Mr. Justice White, Mr. Justice Marshall, and Mr. Justice Blackman concur in this judgment. Affirmed in part and reversed in part. The Medical School of the University of California at Davis opened in 1968 with an entering class of 50 students. In 1971, the size of the entering class was increased to 100 students, a level at which it remains. No admissions program for disadvantaged or minority students existed when the school opened, and the first class contained three Asians but no Blacks, no Mexican-Americans, and no American Indians. Over the next two years, the faculty devised a special admissions program to increase the representation of disadvantaged students in each medical school class. The special program consisted of a separate admission system operating in coordination with the regular admissions process. Under the regular admissions procedure, a candidate could submit his application to the medical school beginning in July of the year preceding the academic year for which admission was sought. Because of the large number of applications, 
the admissions committee screened each one to select candidates for further consideration. Candidates whose overall undergraduate grade point averages fell below 2.5 on a scale of 4.0 were summarily rejected. About one out of six applicants was invited for a personal interview. Following the interviews, each candidate was rated on a scale of 1 to 100 by his interviewers and four other members of the admissions committee. The rating embraced the interviewer's summaries, the candidate's overall grade point average, grade point average in science courses, scores on the Medical College Admissions Test, MCAT, letters of recommendation, extracurricular activities, and other biographical data. The ratings were added together to arrive at each candidate's benchmark score. Since five committee members rated each candidate in 1973, a perfect score was 500. In 1974, six members rated each candidate so that a perfect score was 600. The full committee then reviewed the file and scores of each applicant and made offers of admission on a rolling basis. The chairman was responsible for placing names on the waiting list. They were not placed in strict numerical order. Instead, the chairman had discretion to include persons with special skills. The special admissions program operated with a separate committee, a majority of whom were members of minority groups. On the 1973 application form, candidates were asked to indicate whether they wished to be considered as economically and or educationally disadvantaged applicants. On the 1974 form, the question was whether they wished to be considered as members of a minority group, which the medical school apparently viewed as Blacks, Chicanos, Asians, and American Indians. If these questions were answered affirmatively, the application was forwarded to the Special Admissions Committee. No formal definition of disadvantaged was ever produced, but the chairman of the special committee screened each application to see whether it reflected economic or educational deprivation. Having passed this initial hurdle, the applications then were rated by the special committee in a fashion similar to that used by the general admissions committee, except that special candidates did not have to meet the 2.5 grade point average cutoff applied to regular applicants. About one-fifth of the total number of special applicants were invited for interviews in 1973 and 1974. Following each interview, the special committee assigned each special applicant a benchmark score. The special committee then presented its top choices to the general admissions committee. The latter did not rate or compare the special candidates against the general applicants, but could reject recommended special candidates for failure to meet course requirements or other specific deficiencies. 
the special committee continued to recommend special applicants until a number prescribed by faculty vote were admitted. While the overall class size was still 50, the prescribed number was eight. In 1973 and 1974, when the class size had doubled to 100, the prescribed number of special admissions also doubled to 16. From the year of the increase in class size, 1971, through 1974, this special program resulted in the admission of 21 Black students, 30 Mexican-Americans, and 12 Asians, for a total of 63 minority students. Over the same period, the regular admissions program produced one Black, six Mexican-Americans, and 37 Asians, for a total of 44 minority students. Although disadvantaged whites applied to the special program in large numbers, none received an offer of admission through that process. Indeed, in 1974 at least, the special committee explicitly considered only disadvantaged special applicants who were members of one of the designated minority groups. Alan Bakke is a white male who applied to the Davis Medical School in both 1973 and 1974. In both years, Bakke's application was considered under the general admissions program, and he received an interview. His 1973 interview was with Dr. Theodore C. West, who considered Bakke a very desirable applicant to the medical school. Despite a strong benchmark score of 468 out of 500, Bakke was rejected. His application had come late in the year, and no applicants in the general admissions process with scores below 470 were accepted after Bakke's application was completed. There were four special admission slots unfulfilled at that time, however, for which Bakke was not considered. After his 1973 rejection, Bakke wrote to Dr. George H. Lowry, Associate Dean and Chairman of the Admissions Committee, protesting that the special admissions program operated as a racial and ethnic quota. Bakke's 1974 application was completed early in the year. His student interviewer gave him an overall rating of 94 finding him friendly, well-tempered, conscientious, and delightful to speak with. His faculty interviewer was, by coincidence, the same Dr. Lowry to whom he had written in protest of the special admissions program. Dr. Lowry found Bakke rather limited in his approach to the problems of the medical profession and found disturbing Bakke's very definite opinions which were based more on his personal viewpoints than upon a study of the total problem. Dr. Lowry gave Bakke the lowest of his six ratings, an 86. His total was 549 out of 600. Again, Bakke's application was rejected. In neither year did the chairman of the admissions committee, Dr. Lowry, exercise his discretion to place Bakke on the waiting list. 
In both years, applicants were admitted under the special program with grade point averages, MCAT scores, and benchmark scores significantly lower than Bakke's. After the second rejection, Bakke filed the instant suit in the Superior Court of California. He sought mandatory, injunctive, and declaratory relief, compelling his admission to the medical school. He alleged that the medical school's special admissions program operated to exclude him from the school on the basis of his race. In violation of his rights under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, Article 1, Section 21 of the California Constitution, and Section 601 of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The university cross-complained for a declaration that its special admissions program was lawful. The trial court found that the special program operated as a racial quota because minority applicants in this special program were rated only against one another, and 16 places in the class of 100 were reserved for them. Declaring that the university could not take race into account in making admissions decisions, the trial court held the challenged program violative of the federal constitution, the state constitution, and Title VI. The court refused to order Bakke's admission, however, holding that he had failed to carry his burden of proving that he would have been admitted but for the existence of the special program. Bakke appealed from the portion of the trial court judgment denying him admission, and the university appealed from the decision that its special admissions program was unlawful and the order enjoining it from considering race in the process of applications. The Supreme Court of California transferred the case directly from the trial court because of the importance of the issues involved. The California court accepted the findings of the trial court with respect to the university's program. Because the special admissions program involved a racial classification, the Supreme Court held itself bound to apply strict scrutiny. It then turned to the goals of the university presented as justifying the special program. Although the court agreed that the goals of integrating the medical profession and increasing the number of physicians willing to serve members of minority groups were compelling state interests, it concluded that the special admissions program was not the least intrusive means of achieving those goals. Without passing on the state constitutional or federal statutory grounds cited in the trial court's judgment, the California court held that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment required that no applicant may be rejected because of his race in favor of another who is less qualified as measured by standards applied without regard to race. Turning to Bakke's appeal, the court ruled that since Bakke had established that the university had discriminated against him on the basis of his race, the burden of proof shifted to the university to demonstrate that he would not have been admitted even in the absence of the special admissions program. The court analogized Bakke's situation to that of a plaintiff 
under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. On this basis, the court initially ordered a remand for the purpose of determining whether, under the newly allocated burden of proof, Bakke would have been admitted to either the 1973 or the 1974 entering class in the absence of the special admissions program. In its petition for rehearing below, however, the university conceded its inability to carry that burden. The California court thereupon amended its opinion to direct that the trial court enter judgment ordering Bakke's admission to the medical school. That order was stayed pending review in this court. We granted certiorari to consider the important constitutional issue. Part 2 In this court, the parties neither briefed nor argued the applicability of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Rather, as had the California court, they focused exclusively upon the validity of the special admissions program under the Equal Protection Clause. Because it was possible, however, that a decision on the Title VI might obviate resort to constitutional interpretation, we requested supplementary briefing on the statutory issue. Section A. At the outset, we face the question whether a right of action for private parties exists under Title VI. Respondent argues that there is a private right of action invoking the test set forth in Court v. Ash, 1975. He contends that the statute creates a federal right in his favor, that legislative history reveals an intent to permit private actions, that such actions would further the remedial purposes of the statute, and that enforcement of federal rights under the Civil Rights Act generally is not relegated to the states. In addition, he cites several lower court decisions which have recognized or assumed the existence of a private right of action. Petitioner denies the existence of a private right of action, arguing that the sole function of Section 601 was to establish a predicate for administrative action under Section 602. In its view, administrative curtailment of federal funds under that section was the only sanction to be imposed upon recipients that violated Section 601. Petitioner also points out that Title VI contains no explicit grant of a private right of action, in contrast to Titles II, III, IV, and VII of the same statute. We find it unnecessary to resolve this question in the instant case. The question of respondents' right to bring in action under Title VI was neither argued nor decided in either of the courts below, and this court has been hesitant to review questions not addressed below. We therefore do not address this difficult issue. Similarly, we need not pass upon petitioner's claim 
that private plaintiffs under Title VI must exhaust administrative remedies. We assume, only for the purposes of this case, that respondent has a right of action under Title VI. The language of Section 601, like that of the Equal Protection Clause, is majestic in its sweep. Quote, No person in the United States shall, on the ground of race, color, or national origin, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. The concept of discrimination, like the phrase equal protection of the laws, is susceptible of varying interpretations, for, as Mr. Justice Holmes declared, a word is not a crystal, transparent and unchanged. It is the skin of a living thought and may vary greatly in color and content according to the circumstances and the time in which it is used. We must, therefore, seek whatever aid is available in determining the precise meaning of the statute before us. Examination of the voluminous legislative history of Title VI reveals a congressional intent to halt federal funding of entities that violate a prohibition of racial discrimination similar to that of the Constitution. Although isolated statements of various legislators, taken out of context, can be marshaled in support of the proposition that Section 601 enacted a purely colorblind scheme without regard to the reach of the Equal Protection Clause, these comments must be read against the background of both the problem that Congress was addressing and the broader view of the statute that emerges from a full examination of the legislative debates. The problem confronting Congress was discrimination against Negro citizens at the hands of recipients of federal monies. Indeed, the colorblindness pronouncements cited in the margin generally occur in the midst of extended remarks dealing with the evils of segregation in federally funded programs. Over and over again, proponents of the bill detailed the plight of Negroes seeking equal treatment in such programs. There simply was no reason for Congress to consider the validity of hypothetical preferences that might be accorded minority citizens. The legislators were dealing with the real and pressing problem of how to guarantee those citizens equal treatment. In addressing that problem, supporters of Title VI repeatedly declared that the bill enacted constitutional principles. For example, Representative Seller the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee and floor manager of the legislation in the House, emphasized this in introducing the bill. Quote, The bill would offer assurance that hospitals financed by federal money 
would not deny adequate care to Negroes. It would prevent abuse of food distribution programs whereby Negroes have been known to be denied food surplus supplies when white persons were given such food. It would assure Negroes the benefits now accorded only to white students in programs of higher education financed by federal funds. It would, in short, assure the existing right to equal treatment in the enjoyment of federal funds. It would not destroy any rights of private property or freedom of association. Unquote. Other sponsors shared Representative Sellers' view that Title VI embodied constitutional principles. In the Senate, Senator Humphrey declared that the purpose of Title VI was to ensure that federal funds are spent in accordance with the Constitution and the moral sense of the nation. Senator Ribicoff agreed that Title VI embraced the constitutional standard. Quote, Basically, there is a constitutional restriction against discrimination in the use of federal funds, and Title VI simply spells out the procedure to be used in enforcing that restriction. Other senators expressed similar views. Further evidence of the incorporation of a constitutional standard into Title VI appears in the repeated refusals of the legislation's supporters precisely to define the term discrimination. Opponents sharply criticized this failure, but proponents of the bill merely replied that the meaning of discrimination would be made clear by reference to the Constitution or other existing law. Other sponsors shared Representative Sellers' view that Title VI embodied constitutional principles. In the Senate, Senator Humphrey declared that the purpose of Title VI was to ensure that federal funds are spent in accordance with the Constitution and the moral sense of the nation. Senator Ribicoff agreed that Title VI embraced the constitutional standard. Quote, Basically, there is a constitutional restriction against discrimination in the use of federal funds and Title VI simply spells out the procedure to be used in enforcing that restriction. Other senators expressed similar views. Further evidence of the incorporation of a constitutional standard into Title VI appears in the repeated refusals of the legislation's supporters precisely to define the term discrimination. Opponents sharply criticized this failure, but proponents of the bill merely replied that the meaning of discrimination would be made clear by reference to the Constitution or other existing law. For example, Senator Humphrey noted, the relevance of the Constitution as... For example, Senator Humphrey noted the relevance of the Constitution. Quote, as I have said, the bill has a simple purpose. That purpose is to give fellow citizens, Negroes, the same rights and opportunities that white people take for granted. This is no more than what was preached by the prophets and by Christ himself. It is no more than what our Constitution guarantees. Unquote. In view of the clear legislative intent, 
Title VI must be held to proscribe only those racial classifications that would violate the Equal Protection Clause or the Fifth Amendment. Part 3 Section A Petitioner does not deny the decisions based on race or ethnic origin by faculties and administrations of state universities are reviewable under the 14th Amendment. For his part, Respondent does not argue that all racial or ethnic classifications are per se invalid. The parties do disagree as to the level of judicial scrutiny to be applied to the special admissions program. Petitioner argues that the court below erred in applying strict scrutiny, as this inexact term has been applied in our cases. That level of review, petitioner asserts, should be reserved for classifications that disadvantage discrete and insular minorities. Respondent, on the other hand, contends that the California court correctly rejected the notion that the degree of judicial scrutiny accorded a particular racial or ethnic classification hinges upon membership in a discrete and insular minority and duly recognized that the rights established by the 14th Amendment are personal rights. En route to this crucial battle over the scope of judicial review, the parties fight a sharp preliminary action over the proper characterization of the special admissions program. Petitioner prefers to view it as establishing a goal of minority representation in the medical school. Respondent, echoing the courts below, labels it a racial quota. This semantic distinction is beside the point. The special admissions program is undeniably a classification based on race and ethnic background. To the extent that there existed a pool of at least minimally qualified minority applicants to fill the 16 special admission seats, white applicants could compete only for 84 seats in the entering class, rather than the 100 open to minority applicants. Whether this limitation is described as a quota or a goal, it is a line drawn on the basis of race and ethnic status. The guarantees of the 14th Amendment extend to all persons. Its language is explicit. Quote, no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Unquote. It is settled beyond question that the rights created by the first section of the 14th Amendment are, by its terms, guaranteed to the individual. The rights established are personal rights. The guarantee of equal protection cannot mean one thing when applied to one individual and something else when applied to a person of another color. If both are not accorded the same protection, then it is not equal. Nevertheless, Petitioner argues that the court below erred in applying strict scrutiny to the special admissions program because white males, such as respondent, 
are not a discrete and insular minority requiring extraordinary protection from the majoritarian political process. This rationale, however, has never been invoked in our decisions as a prerequisite to subjecting racial or ethnic distinctions to strict scrutiny, nor has this court held that discreteness and insularity constitute necessary preconditions to a holding that a particular classification is invidious. These characteristics may be relevant in deciding whether or not to add new types of classifications to the list of suspect categories, or whether a particular classification survives close examination. Racial and ethnic classifications, however, are subject to stringent examination without regard to these additional characteristics. We declared as much in the first cases explicitly to recognize racial distinctions as suspect. Quote, distinctions between citizens solely because of their ancestry are, by their very nature, odious to a free people whose institutions are founded upon the doctrine of equality. All legal restrictions which curtail the civil rights of a single racial group are immediately suspect. That is not to say that all such restrictions are unconstitutional. It is to say that courts must subject them to the most rigid scrutiny. The court has never questioned the validity of those pronouncements. Racial and ethnic distinctions of any sort are inherently suspect and thus call for the most exacting judicial examination. Section B. This perception of racial and ethnic distinctions is rooted in our nation's constitutional and demographic history. The Court's initial view of the 14th Amendment was that its one pervading purpose was the freedom of the slave race, the security and firm establishment of that freedom, and the protection of the newly made freeman and citizen from the oppressions of those who had formerly exercised dominion over him. The Equal Protection Clause, however, was virtually strangled in infancy by post-Civil War judicial reactionism. It was relegated to decades of relative destitute, while the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, after a short germinal period, flourished as a cornerstone in the court's defense of property and liberty of contract. In that cause, the 14th Amendment's one pervading purpose was displaced. It was only as the era of substantive due process came to a close that the Equal Protection Clause began to attain a genuine measure of vitality. By that time, it was no longer possible to peg the guarantees of the 14th Amendment to the struggle for equality of one racial minority. During the dormancy of the Equal Protection Clause, the United States had become a nation of minorities. Each had to struggle, and to some extent, struggles still, to overcome the prejudices not of a monolithic majority, but of a majority composed of various minority groups 
of whom it was said, perhaps unfairly in many cases, that a shared characteristic was a willingness to disadvantage other groups. As the nation filled with the stock of many lands, the reach of the clause was gradually extended to all ethnic groups seeking protection from official discrimination. The guarantees of equal protection, said the court in Wick Woe, are universal in their application to all persons within the territorial jurisdiction, without regard to any differences of race, of color, or of nationality. And the equal protection of the laws is a pledge of the protection of equal laws. Although many of the framers of the 14th Amendment conceived of its primary function as bridging the vast distance between members of the Negro race and the white majority, the amendment itself was framed in universal terms without reference to color, ethnic origin, or condition of prior servitude. As this court recently remarked in interpreting the 1866 Civil Rights Act to extend to claims of racial discrimination against white persons, the 39th Congress was intent upon establishing in the federal law a broader principle than would have been necessary simply to meet the particular and immediate plight of the newly freed Negro slaves. And that legislation was specifically broadened in 1870 to ensure that all persons, not merely citizens, would enjoy equal rights under the law. Indeed, it is not unlikely that among the framers were many who would have applauded a reading of the Equal Protection Clause that states a principle of universal application and is responsive to the racial, ethnic, and cultural diversity of the nation. Over the past 30 years, this court has embarked upon the crucial mission of interpreting the Equal Protection Clause with the view of assuring to all persons the protection of equal laws in a nation confronting a legacy of slavery and racial discrimination. Because the landmark decisions in this area arose in response to the continued exclusion of Negroes from the mainstream of American society, they could be characterized as involving discrimination by the majority white race against the Negro minority. But they need not be read as depending upon that characterization for their results. It suffices to say that over the years, this court has consistently repudiated distinctions between citizens solely because of their ancestry, as being odious to a free people whose institutions are founded upon the doctrine of equality. Petitioner urges us to adopt, for the first time, a more restrictive view of the Equal Protection Clause and hold that discrimination against members of the white majority cannot be suspect if its purpose can be characterized as benign. The clock of our liberties, however, cannot be turned back to 1868. It is far too late to argue that the guarantee of equal protection to all persons permits the recognition of special wards entitled to a degree of protection greater than accorded others. 
the 14th Amendment is not directed solely against discrimination due to a two-class theory, that is, bad upon differences between white and Negro. Once the artificial line of a two-class theory of the 14th Amendment is put aside, the difficulties entailed in varying the level of judicial review according to a perceived preferred status of a particular racial or ethnic minority are intractable. The concepts of majority and minority necessarily reflect temporary arrangements and political judgments. As observed above, the white majority itself is composed of various minority groups, most of which can lay claim to a history of prior discrimination at the hands of the state and private individuals. Not all of these groups can receive preferential treatment and corresponding judicial tolerance of distinctions drawn in terms of race and nationality, for then the majority left would be a new minority of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. There is no principled basis for deciding which groups would merit heightened judicial solicitude and which would not. Courts would be asked to evaluate the extent of the prejudice and consequent harm suffered by various minority groups. Those whose societal injury is thought to exceed some arbitrary level of tolerability then would be entitled to preferential classifications at the expense of individuals belonging to other groups. Those classifications would be free from exacting judicial scrutiny. As these preferences began to have their desired effect, and the consequences of past discrimination were undone, new judicial rankings would be necessary. The kind of variable sociological and political analysis necessary to produce such rankings simply does not lie within the judicial competence, even if they otherwise were politically feasible and socially desirable. Moreover, there are serious problems of justice connected with the idea of preference itself. First, it may not always be clear that a so-called preference is, in fact, benign. Courts may be asked to validate burdens imposed upon individual members of a particular group in order to advance the group's general interest. Nothing in the Constitution supports the notion that individuals may be asked to suffer otherwise impermissible burdens in order to enhance the societal standing of their ethnic groups. Second, preferential programs may only reinforce common stereotypes holding that certain groups are unable to achieve success without special protection based on a factor having no relationship to individual worth. Third, there is a measure of inequity in forcing innocent persons in respondents' position to bear the burdens of redressing grievances not of their making. By hitching the meaning of the Equal Protection Clause to these transitory considerations, we would be holding, as a constitutional principle, that judicial scrutiny of classifications touching on racial and ethnic background may vary with the ebb and flow of political forces. Disparate constitutional tolerance of such classifications 
well may serve to exacerbate racial and ethnic antagonisms rather than alleviate them. Also, the mutability of a constitutional principle based upon shifting political and social judgments undermines the chances for consistent application of the Constitution from one generation to the next, a critical feature of its coherent interpretation. In expounding the Constitution, the Court's role is to discern principles sufficiently absolute to give them roots throughout the community and continuity over significant periods of time and to lift them above the level of the pragmatic political judgments of a particular time and place. If it is the individual who is entitled to judicial protection against classifications based upon his racial or ethnic background because such distinctions impinge upon personal rights, rather than the individual only because of his membership in a particular group, then constitutional standards may be applied consistently. Political judgments regarding the necessity for the particular classification may be weighed in the constitutional balance. But the standard of justification will remain constant. This is as it should be since those political judgments are the product of rough compromise struck by contending groups within the democratic process. When they touch upon an individual's race or ethnic background, he is entitled to a judicial determination that the burden he is asked to bear on that basis is precisely tailored to serve a compelling governmental interest. The Constitution guarantees that right to every person, regardless of his background. Section C. Petitioner contends that on several occasions, this court has approved preferential classifications without applying the most exacting scrutiny. Most of the cases upon which petitioner relies are drawn from three areas school desegregation, employment discrimination, and sex discrimination. Each of the cases cited presented a situation materially different from the facts of this case. The school desegregation cases are inapposite. Each involved remedies for clearly determined constitutional violations. Racial classifications thus were designed as remedies for the vindication of constitutional entitlement. Moreover, the scope of the remedies was not permitted to exceed the extent of the violations. Here, there was no judicial determination of constitutional violation as predicate for the formulation of a remedial classification. The employment discrimination cases also do not advance petitioner's cause. For example, in Franks v. Bowman Transportation Company, we approved a retroactive award of seniority to a class of Negro truck drivers who had been the victims of discrimination, not just by society at large, but by the respondent in that case, 
While this relief imposed some burdens on other employees, it was held necessary to make the victims whole for injuries suffered on account of unlawful employment discrimination. The courts of appeals have fashioned various types of racial preferences as remedies for constitutional or statutory violations resulting in identified race-based injuries to individuals held entitled to the preference. Such preferences also have been upheld where a legislative or administrative body charged with the responsibility made determinations of past discrimination by the industries affected and fashioned remedies deemed appropriate to rectify the discrimination. But we have never approved preferential classifications in the absence of proved constitutional or statutory violations. Nor is petitioner's view as to the applicable standard supported by the fact that gender-based classifications are not subjected to this level of scrutiny. Gender-based distinctions are less likely to create the analytical and practical problems present in preferential programs premised on racial or ethnic criteria. With respect to gender, there are only two possible classifications. Incidence of the burdens imposed by preferential classifications is clear. There are no rival groups which can claim that they, too, are entitled to preferential treatment. Class-wide questions as to the group suffering previous injury and groups which fairly can be burdened are relatively manageable for reviewing court. The resolution of these same questions in the context of racial and ethnic preferences presents far more complex and intractable problems than gender-based classifications. More importantly, the perception of racial classifications as inherently odious stems from a lengthy and tragic history that gender-based classifications do not share. In sum, the court has never viewed such classification as inherently suspect or as comparable to racial or ethnic classifications for the purpose of equal protection analysis. Petitioner also cites Lau v. Nichols in support of the proposition that discrimination favoring racial or ethnic minorities has received judicial approval without the exacting inquiry ordinarily accorded suspect classifications. In Lau, we held that the failure of the San Francisco school system to provide remedial English instruction for some 1,800 students of Oriental ancestry who spoke no English amounted to a violation of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and the regulations promulgated thereunder. Those regulations required remedial instruction where inability to understand English excluded children of foreign ancestry from participation in educational programs. 
Because we found that the students in Laos were denied a meaningful opportunity to participate in the educational program, we remanded for the fashioning of a remedial order. Lao provides little support for petitioner's argument. The decision rested solely on the statute, which had been construed by the responsible administrative agency to each educational practices, which have the effect of subjecting individuals to discrimination. We stated, Under these state-imposed standards, there is no equality of treatment merely by providing students with the same facilities, textbooks, teachers, and curriculum. For students who do not understand English are effectively foreclosed from any meaningful education. Moreover, the preference approved did not result in the denial of the relevant benefit, meaningful opportunity to participate in the educational program, to anyone else. No other student was deprived by that preference of the ability to participate in San Francisco's school system, and the applicable regulations required similar assistance for all students who suffered similar linguistic deficiencies. In a similar vein, Petitioner contends that our recent decision in United Jewish Organization v. Carey indicates a willingness to approve racial classifications designed to benefit certain minorities without denominating the classifications as suspect. The state of New York had withdrawn its reapportionment plan to meet objections of the Department of Justice under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Specifically, voting districts were redrawn to enhance the electoral power of certain non-white voters found to have been the victims of unlawful dilution under the original reapportionment plan. United Jewish organizations, like Lao, properly is viewed as a case in which the remedy for an administrative finding of discrimination encompassed measures to improve the previously disadvantaged group's ability to participate without excluding individuals belonging to any other group from enjoyment of the relevant opportunity, meaningful participation in the electoral process. In this case, unlike Lao and United Jewish Organizations, there has been no determination by the legislature or a responsible administrative agency that the university engaged in a discriminatory practice requiring remedial effort. Moreover, the operation of petitioners' special admissions program is quite different from the remedial measures approved in those cases. It prefers the designated minority groups at the expense of other individuals who are totally foreclosed from competition for the 16 special admission seats in every medical school class. Because of that foreclosure, some individuals are excluded from enjoyment of a state-provided benefit, admission to the medical school, they otherwise would receive. When a classification denies an individual opportunities or benefits enjoyed by others solely because of his race or ethnic background, it must be regarded as suspect.
Part 4 We have held that, in order to justify the use of a suspect classification, a state must show that its purpose or interest is both constitutionally permissible and substantial, and that its use of the classification is necessary to the accomplishment of its purpose or the safeguarding of its interest. The Special Admissions Program purports to serve the purposes of reducing the historic deficit of traditionally disfavored minorities in medical schools and in the medical profession, countering the effects of societal discrimination, increasing the number of physicians who will practice in communities currently underserved, and obtaining the educational benefits that flow from an ethnically diverse student body. It is necessary to decide which, if any, of these purposes is substantial enough to support the use of a suspect classification. Section A. If petitioner's purpose is to assure within its student body some specified percentage of a particular group merely because of its race or ethnic origin, such a preferential purpose must be rejected not as insubstantial, but as facially invalid. Preferring members of any one group for no reason other than race or ethnic origin is discrimination for its own sake. This the Constitution forbids. Section B. The state certainly has a legitimate and substantial interest in ameliorating or eliminating, where feasible, the disabling effects of identified discrimination. The line of school desegregation cases, commencing with Brown, attests to the importance of this state goal. The line of school desegregation cases, commencing with Brown, attests to the importance of this state goal and the commitment of the judiciary to affirm all lawful means toward its attainment. In the school cases, the states were required by court order to redress the wrongs worked by specific instances of racial discrimination. That goal was far more focused than the remedying of the effects of societal discrimination and amorphous concept of injury that may be ageless in its reach into the past. We have never approved a classification that aids persons perceived as members of a relatively victimized group at the expense of other innocent individuals in the absence of judicial, legislative, or administrative findings of constitutional or statutory violations. After such findings have been made, the governmental interest in preferring members of the injured groups at the expense of others is substantial, since the legal rights of the victims must be vindicated. In such a case, the extent of the injury and the consequent remedy will have been judicially, legislatively, or administratively defined. Also, the remedial action usually remains subject to continuing oversight to assure 
that it will work the least harm possible to the other innocent persons competing for the benefit. Without such findings of constitutional or statutory violations, it cannot be said that the government has any greater interest in helping one individual than in refraining from harming another. Thus, the government has no compelling justification for inflicting such harm. Petitioner does not purport to have made and is in no position to make such findings. Its broad mission is education, not the formulation of any legislative policy or the adjudication of particular claims of illegality. For reasons similar to those stated in 438 U.S., isolated segments of our vast governmental structures are not competent to make those decisions, at least in the absence of legislative mandates and legislatively determined criteria. Before relying upon these sorts of findings in establishing a racial classification, a governmental body must have the authority and capability to establish in the record that the classification is responsive to identified discrimination. Lacking this capability, Petitioner has not carried its burden of justification on this issue. Hence the purpose of helping certain groups whom the faculty of the Davis Medical School perceived as victims of societal discrimination does not justify a classification that imposes disadvantages upon persons like respondent, who bear no responsibility for whatever harm the beneficiaries of the special admissions program are thought to have suffered. To hold otherwise would be to convert a remedy heretofore reserved for violations of legal rights into a privilege that all institutions throughout the nation could grant at their pleasure to whatever groups are perceived as victims of societal discrimination. That is a step we have never approved. Section C. Petitioner identifies, as another purpose of its program, improving the delivery of health care services to communities currently underserved. It may be assumed that in some situations, a state's interest in facilitating the health care of its citizens is sufficiently compelling to support the use of a suspect classification. But there is virtually no evidence in the record indicating that petitioners' special admissions program is either needed or geared to promote that goal. The court below addressed this failure of proof. Quote, the university concedes it cannot assure that minority doctors who entered under the program, all of whom expressed an interest in practicing in a disadvantaged community, will actually do so. It may be correct to assume that some of them will carry out this intention and that it is more likely they will practice in minority communities than the average white doctor. Nevertheless, there are more precise and reliable ways to identify applicants who are genuinely interested in the medical problems of minorities than by race. 
an applicant of whatever race who has demonstrated his concern for disadvantaged minorities in the past and who declares that practice in such a community is his primary professional goal would be more likely to contribute to alleviation of the medical shortage than one who is chosen entirely on the basis of race and disadvantage. In short, there is no empirical data to demonstrate that any one race is more selflessly socially oriented or, by contrast, that another is more selfishly acquisitive. Petitioner simply has not carried its burden of demonstrating that it must prefer members of particular ethnic groups over all other individuals in order to promote better health care delivery to deprived citizens. Indeed, Petitioner has not shown that its preferential classification is likely to have any significant effect on the problem. Section D. The fourth goal asserted by Petitioner is the attainment of a diverse student body. This clearly is a constitutionally permissible goal for an institution of higher education. Academic freedom, though not a specifically enumerated constitutional right, long has been viewed as a special concern of the First Amendment. The freedom of a university to make its own judgments as to education includes the selection of its student body. Mr. Justice Frankfurter summarized the four essential freedoms that constitute academic freedom. Quote, it is the business of a university to provide that atmosphere which is most conducive to speculation, experiment, and creation. It is an atmosphere in which there prevail the four essential freedoms of a university to determine for itself on academic grounds who may teach, what may be taught, how it shall be taught, and who may be admitted to study. Our national commitment to the safeguarding of these freedoms within university communities was emphasized in Keishian the Board of Regents. Quote, Our nation is deeply committed to safeguarding academic freedom, which is of transcendent value to all of us, and not merely to the teachers concerned. That freedom is therefore a special concern of the First Amendment. The nation's future depends upon leaders trained through wide exposure to that robust exchange of ideas which discovers truth out of a multitude of tongues rather than through any kind of authoritative selection. The atmosphere of speculation, experiment, and creation, so essential to the quality of higher education, is widely believed to be promoted by a diverse student body. As the court noted, it is not too much to say that the nation's future depends upon leaders trained through wide exposure to the ideas and mores of students as diverse as this nation of many peoples. Thus, in arguing that its universities must be accorded the right to select those students who will contribute the most to the robust exchange of ideas, 
petitioner invokes a countervailing constitutional interest, that of the First Amendment. In this light, petitioner must be viewed as seeking to achieve a goal that is of paramount importance in the fulfillment of its mission. It may be argued that there is greater force to these views at the undergraduate level than in a medical school, where the training is centered primarily on professional competency. But even at the graduate level, our tradition and experience lend support to the view that the contribution of diversity is substantial. In Sweat v. Painter, the court made a similar point with specific reference to legal education. The law school, the proving ground for legal learning and practice, cannot be effective in isolation from the individuals and institutions with which the law interacts. Few students, and no one who has practiced law, would choose to study in an academic vacuum removed from the interplay of ideas and the exchange of views with which the law is concerned. Physicians serve a heterogeneous population. An otherwise qualified medical student with a particular background, whether it be ethnic, geographic, culturally advantaged, or disadvantaged, may bring to a professional school of medicine experiences, outlooks, and ideas that enrich the training of its student body and better equip its graduates to render with understanding their vital service to humanity. Ethnic diversity, however, is only one element in a range of factors a university properly may consider in attaining the goal of a heterogeneous student body. Although a university must have wide discretion in making the sensitive judgments as to who should be admitted, constitutional limitations protecting individual rights may not be disregarded. Respondent urges, and the courts below have held, that petitioner's dual admissions program is a racial classification that impermissibly infringes his rights under the 14th Amendment. As the interest of diversity is compelling in the context of a university's admissions program, the question remains whether the program's racial classification is necessary to promote this interest. Part 5 Section A. It may be assumed that the reservation of a specific number of seats in each class for individuals from the preferred ethnic groups would contribute to the attainment of considerable ethnic diversity in the student body. But petitioner's argument that this is the only effective means of serving the interest of diversity is seriously flawed. In a most fundamental sense, the argument misconceives the nature of the state interest that would justify consideration of race or ethnic background. It is not an interest in simple ethnic diversity in which a specified percentage of the student body is in effect guaranteed to be members of selected ethnic groups, with the remaining percentage an undifferentiated aggregation of students. The diversity that furthers a compelling state interest 
encompasses a far broader array of qualifications and characteristics, of which racial or ethnic origin is but a single, though important, element. Petitioner's special admissions program, focused solely on ethnic diversity, would hinder rather than further attainment of genuine diversity. Nor would the state interest in genuine diversity be served by expanding petitioner's two-track system into a multi-track program, with a prescribed number of seats set aside for each identifiable category of applicants. Indeed, it is inconceivable that a university would thus pursue the logic of petitioner's two-track program to the illogical end of insulating each category of applicants with certain desired qualifications from competition with all other applicants. The experience of other university admissions programs, which take race into account in achieving the educational diversity valued by the First Amendment, demonstrates that the assignment of a fixed number of places to a minority group is not a necessary means toward that end. An illuminating example is found in the Harvard College program. In recent years, Harvard College has expanded the concept of diversity to include students from disadvantaged economic, racial, and ethnic groups. Harvard College now recruits not only Californians or Louisianans, but also Blacks and Chicanos and other minority students. In practice, this new definition of, of diversity has meant that race has been a factor in some admission decisions. When the Committee on Admissions reviews the large middle group of applicants who are admissible and deemed capable of doing good work in their courses, the race of an applicant may tip the balance in his favor, just as geographic origin or a life spent on a farm may tip the balance in other candidates' cases. A farm boy from Idaho can bring something to Harvard College that a Bostonian cannot offer. Similarly, a black student can usually bring something that a white person cannot offer. In Harvard College admissions, the committee has not set target quotas for the number of blacks or of musicians, football players, physicists, or Californians to be admitted in a given year, but that awareness of the necessity of including more than a token number of black students does not mean that the committee sets a minimum number of blacks or of people from west of the Mississippi who are to be admitted. It means only that in choosing among thousands of applicants who are not only admissible academically, but have other strong qualities, the committee, with a number of criteria in mind, pays some attention to distribution among many types and categories of students. In such an admissions program, race or ethnic background may be deemed a plus in a particular applicant's file, Yet, it does not insulate the individual from comparison with all other candidates for the available seats. The file of a particular Black applicant may be examined for his potential contribution to diversity without the factor of race being decisive when compared. For example, 
with that of an applicant identified as an Italian-American if the latter is thought to exhibit qualities more likely to promote beneficial educational pluralism. Such qualities could include exceptional personal talents, unique work or service experience, leadership potential, maturity, demonstrated compassion, a history of overcoming disadvantage, ability to communicate with the poor, or other qualifications deemed important. In short, an admissions program operated in this way is flexible enough to consider all pertinent elements of diversity in light of the particular qualifications of each applicant and to place them on the same footing for consideration, although not necessarily according them the same weight. Indeed, the weight attributed to a particular quality may vary from year to year depending on the mix both of the student body and the applicants for the incoming class. This kind of program treats each applicant as an individual in the admissions process. The applicant who loses out on the last available seat to another candidate receiving a plus on the basis of ethnic background will not have been foreclosed from all consideration for that seat simply because he was not the right color or had the wrong surname. It would mean only that his combined qualifications, which may have included similar non-objective factors, did not outweigh those of the other applicant. His qualifications would have been weighed fairly and competitively, and he would have no basis to complain of unequal treatment under the 14th Amendment. It has been suggested that an admissions program which considers race only as one factor is simply a subtle and more sophisticated, but no less effective, means of according racial preference than the Davis program. A facial intent to discriminate, however, is evident in petitioner's preference program and not denied in this case. No such facial infirmity exists in an admissions program where race or ethnic background is simply one element to be weighed fairly against other elements in the selection process. A boundary line, as Mr. Justice Frankfurter remarked in another connection, is none the worse for being narrow. And a court would not assume that a university professing to employ a facially non-discriminatory admissions policy would operate it as a cover for the functional equivalent of a quota system. In short, good faith would be presumed in the absence of a showing to the contrary in the manner permitted by our cases. Section B. In summary, it is evident that the Davis Special Admissions Program involves the use of an explicit racial classification never before countenanced by this court. It tells applicants who are not Negro, Asian, or Chicano that they are totally excluded from a specific percentage of the seats in an entering class, no matter how strong their qualifications, quantitative and extracurricular, including their own potential for contribution to educational diversity, 
they are never afforded the chance to compete with applicants from the preferred groups for the special admission seats. At the same time, the preferred applicants have the opportunity to compete for every seat in the class. The fatal flaw in petitioners' preferential program is its disregard of individual rights as guaranteed by the 14th Amendment. Such rights are not absolute, but when a state's distribution of benefits or imposition of burdens hinges on ancestry or the color of a person's skin, that individual is entitled to a demonstration that the challenged classification is necessary to promote a substantial state interest. Petitioner has failed to carry this burden. For this reason, that portion of the California court's judgment holding petitioner's special admissions program invalid under the 14th Amendment must be affirmed. Section C. In enjoining petitioner from ever considering the race of any applicant, however, the courts below failed to recognize that the state has a substantial interest that legitimately may be served by a properly devised admissions program involving the competitive consideration of race and ethnic origin. For this reason, so much of the California court's judgment as enjoins petitioner from any consideration of the race of any applicant must be reversed. Part 6 With respect to respondent's entitlement to an injunction directing his admission to the medical school, petitioner has conceded that it could not carry its burden of proving that but for the existence of its unlawful special admissions program, respondent still would not have been admitted. Hence, respondent is entitled to the injunction, and that portion of the judgment must be affirmed. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, Thanks for listening to what SCOTUS wrote us.